You're listening to BC Polytalk. I'm Daniel Fontaine, your co-host. And I'm Bill Tillman, your other co-host, and hopefully you're watching us too. And on today's show, we have Ravi Kalan, and Ravi is the Parliamentary Secretary for a very long uh, Parliamentary Secretary post of Forest, Lands, Natural Resources, Operations, and Rural Development. So that covers a, a lot of areas, and we're going to be talking to Ravi today about forestry and much more. What's on uh, your agenda, Bill? Well, I definitely want to talk about ride sharing, which people are waiting for for some time, and I think he'll have lots to say about that. I also think uh, we'll hear something interesting from Ravi because he was on a tour uh, to talk about anti-racism measures all across the province and heard some very amazing stories, I understand. Yeah, and there are um, a, a number of other issues I'd like to talk about, including ride sharing, because he's from Delta, so I know that uh, there's a lot of people in his community that are probably waiting for that ride share app to be working, so I'm going to be posing the question to him as to what's taking so long? Why don't we have ride share in BC? Yeah, and I think we also want to talk about uh, some of the topical issues of today, the coastal gas link issue, where the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs are trying to hold things up, and the recent decision on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And I'd like to just, in, in closing, kind of explore a little bit about the whole rural-urban divide when it comes to forestry, and actually resource development in, in on the whole in British Columbia, and the fact that you've got these communities up island that are struggling right now, and, and you've got some folks in the lower mainland that might not be very connected to forestry. So I'm going to ask him that question as well. Ravi Kalin is our second guest on the show, and I'm looking forward to it. So am I. Welcome, Ravi Kalan, MLA for Delta North, Parliamentary Secretary, Forest, Natural Resources, Lands, other stuff. It's a long title. It was close. It was close. <laughs> I don't even remember sometimes, so you did pretty well. Well, we're really happy to have you here as our second guest on uh, BC Poly Talk, and uh, we're excited to talk to you. Uh, there's lots going on in BC politics, mm -hmm. as there always is, but one of the questions that I have, which uh, is, I think, on the minds of everybody who follows politics, is are we going to be in an election in 2020 with all of the strange goings on with the Green Party, Andrew Weaver suddenly yeah. deciding to actually leave the party as well as uh, step down as leader? Does this instability mean we might have an election? Man, you guys don't mess around. I thought that was going to be some light conversation, we maybe some easy questions. topics right off the top, and asking about my family. But you went straight to it. Well, uh, really, um, I mean, you guys are you guys are the pundits, so you guys will have a better sense of uh, the punditry side we're, of it. We're as mystified <laughs> as everybody else here. Yeah, I mean, what what I'll say is, um, uh, Andrew, I've got a lot of respect for Andrew, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of respect for him, and and a lot of people don't know this story, but it's uh, when my mom immigrated in the early '70s to Canada. She washed dishes in a restaurant for eight years. Uh, and then uh, in early 2000s, she ended up buying that restaurant. Well, that restaurant was owned by Andrew Weaver's oh. in-laws. Wow. So they uh, owned it when my mom, they gave my mom her first job, and then they sold her the restaurant wow. when they retired. And so it's uh, so we have this kind of a special bond. And so although we probably butt heads, uh, maybe not the most for everybody, but we butt heads quite a bit, uh, there's a heavy amount of respect there. And so um, I do have, um, I, I do believe that his, uh, you know, he's going through this tough time with his, mm -hmm. uh, you know, wife being sick and, uh, and then his own health. And so, uh, you know, whatever he decides to do, I, I wish him, I wish him well. And he's, he's changed the game. I mean, he's going to be in the history books. Uh, you know, the, the climate change plan that we've passed is historic. Um, it's the leader in North America, and his fingerprints are all over that. And so I think he, he got into it because of climate change, and he gets to say when he decides that eventually he is done that he was an instrumental part of yeah. something historic. So yeah. Him sitting, though, as an independent must have raised some eyebrows in Victoria because he could have stayed within the caucus mm -hmm. and continued on. So there must be, we're trying to still figure out what the, the hidden message, if there is one, as to why he would sit as an independent. Any yeah. insight into well, that? Well, I, I mean, the only thing I would say is that um, Andrew very, much knew where he wanted the party to go to. Uh, and so uh, the only thing I can assume is that he sees this thing 
going in a totally different direction. Um, but that might not be the case. Again, it may be just because of family issues. Uh, and it's hard to speculate just because I don't know the dynamics of what's happening in there. I'll just say that I got a lot of time for Andrew. Uh, and he's done some amazing things. Uh, he's changed the game, as I said. And uh, and I wish him well in whatever decision Yeah, he and, makes and we do as well. Because yeah. it's, uh, I think, uh, always politics falls aside when someone's got personal yeah. health issues or in their family, whatever. And I think we've seen that with Tracy Reddy's and, and with other mm -hmm. members, uh, Lisa Bear and others in the, yeah, in the, in the, in the legislature. Uh, Ravi, you're the uh, parliamentary secretary to the Minister mm -hmm. of Forests. You've got a lot of stuff going on in that ministry right now. We've got the Western Forest Products dispute uh, going on with steelworkers and uh, Western Forest Products, obviously. We've also got uh, just general challenges to forestry. How have you found in taking on this yeah. new role? What are the big issues for you? Yeah, well, for me, uh, my mandate letter is pretty clear. It's very interior focused. And so I didn't spend any time on the coast related issues just because uh, I tried to stay in my lane. It's enough work to focus on the interior. Mm -hmm. So I did three rounds through the interior um, I, right when I got the file. In fact, some of the mayors chuckled that uh, I might as well buy a place there because I was there so <laughs> often. Um, but it, it was tough. It's tough, tough conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't shy, I, you know, uh, shy away from it. I went and talked to people who lost their jobs. I lost, talked to contractors who mm -hmm. uh, are losing their businesses um, and they weren't the most friendly conversations but uh, you know you can't hide from these things and yeah. so we went and we've had conversations and we put the uh, package together that I think has gone a long way. Um, uh, you know, we've uh, got people now going to job placement offices to find work. Uh, there's lots of job opportunities, uh, you know, the pipeline expansion and, and some work at Site C, and then there's a highway expansion project. So there's work trying to place people, but our number one focus was to stabilize these communities. I mean, the number one thing I heard from people was, I, you know, I want my job. I, that's number one. Yeah. Second was, I want to stay in my community. Yeah. And so that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to stabilize these communities during a very difficult time. And now once we've kind of got to that place where we found some stability, it's where does the forest sector go from here? And, uh, and we need changes. You know, we can't have, you know, in 2008, we went through this. We lost a lot of jobs, a lot of mills shut down. And uh, now when I'm meeting people, they say, wow, I wish we'd done things in 2008. I wish we'd made changes that we needed to make in 2008. And I certainly don't want to hear people maybe five, six years from now say, wow, in 2017 and 18 and 19 and 20, we should have made changes. So we have to rethink how we do forestry. There is a better way. But I also don't like the other argument saying, well, we just stop forestry altogether. Life will be so much better. I mean, uh, you know, I think people are just crazy. Yeah. So Ravi, you represent Delta North. Yeah. So the last time I checked, there isn't a lot of forestry in yeah. Delta North. So how do you address the, the issue, like from an urban area, a lot yeah. of people in urban areas really don't make that connection to forestry and you're from obviously an urban area. Yeah. How do you convince, or is that the right yeah. way to, to frame it? How do you get people in places like Metro Vancouver to actually make that connection of how important forestry yeah. is to the BC economy? Well, I think you nailed it. I mean, I, I do have a mill in my community. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so, uh, and, and my dad worked in a mill. His first job here in Canada was working as a, and he was an IWA member. And, uh, Mine too. <laughs> really? And there you go. And, and yeah. a lot of stories are like yeah. that. And, yeah. and he lost his job. And that, and my family went through a very difficult time when he lost his job. I was sent to India for four years without my parents. Mm. No FaceTime, <laughs> no WhatsApp, <laughs> communicating, right? Yeah. And so I've lived through what, what a mail closure means to a family. And so it's kind of personal. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, I think you nailed it, which is people sometimes I feel don't fully appreciate what forestry means to our economy uh, in BC, what it means to the economy in Lower Mainland, uh, and what it means to people that are living in forest-dependent communities. Um, even on the environmental question, 
people who live in forest dependent communities are environmentalists. Mm -hmm. They might not want to call themselves that, but they care about their waters, they care about their forests, they care about where they go camping and where they spend time with their family. Uh, they just believe that you can make money and, uh, and, and take care of the forest. Mm -hmm. Certainly we need to do a better job of it. I think that's what we've heard clearly, but it is possible to do so. Uh, and so I say to people all the time, go meet people in forest-dependent communities, talk mm -hmm. to them. You'll find that they actually know a lot about what's happening in their backyard um, and, uh, and they want to see it done better. Uh, but they also want to be, uh, they want to ensure that they can work and stay in those communities. And so we have to find that balance. Mm. And it is a renewable resource. That's one of the things mm. that people forget about. It's not like oil, which will eventually disappear and, and yeah. uh, natural gas and all these things. We can keep growing forests. Yeah, and it's part of the uh, climate change uh, solution. Yeah, It's not something that's a part of the problem. I mean, we need to reforest more. Uh, we need to have a mixture of species. We need to do uh, many other things uh, in our planning processes. But, you know, if you look at the the way that building construction yeah. is changing uh, and and the importance of forest products being used uh, in cross laminate timber timber and mm -hmm. new buildings and 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 the new products that we're creating out of bio uh, yeah. biofuels yeah. and uh, it's it's mind-blowing and you know my perception of it when I was young because my dad used to work at a mill and work on the green chain yeah. it's it's not that anymore yeah. you go in there now it's high-tech yeah. uh, everything is high-tech and so uh, the game is changing in the forest industry. I just don't think people here have fully understood that and it, because it's not in their face every day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so my part of my role is to, to highlight that and, and make yeah. sure people understand. And it understand. used to be such a, a, an enormous industry mm -hmm. before in terms of employment, but also we had giant figures like Jack Monroe, mm -hmm. uh, the head of the IWA, who were larger than life and yeah. a, a friend of, of mine. Um, just one thing I want to ask you about further on the forestry mm -hmm. question. <sighs> As long as I can remember people talking in politics and public policy about forcing that we got to do more value added. And yet it seems like we never quite get there. What's your sense of, of well, where we can go with forestry? Well, I think uh, in from what I've heard uh, from people who lived through you know, the tough times in 08, um, that's what people were talking about then. Mm -hmm. But the markets turned real quick and people started making money again. Yeah. And so that got kind of pushed off the side. Uh, and I think that uh, now it's different the allowable cut has come down huge. And uh, now there's no choice. Yeah. We have to go in that direction. Uh, industry understands that. Contractors understand that. Uh, workers understand that. And the communities certainly understand that. And so we're in a unique place in that all the, the kind of the, the pieces, First Nations, everybody understands that we can't think, do things the way we've been doing them. We've got to do them differently. And those conversations have started. And I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that uh, we'll be able to turn the ship in a positive direction so we can continue to do this for a long time. So how big do you think resource extraction as a whole, not necessarily just forestry, but we're, we're, we're talking about things like the TMX pipeline mm -hmm. and, you know, the coastal gas project. There's a lot of, BC is a very resource-based economy. Uh, where do you see the NDP kind of going into the future in terms of resources? Because you've got this issue, as you mentioned, yeah. or folks pr primarily in urban areas where they just want uh, to, in quotes, protect the environment. They don't want yeah. anything out of the ground. How do you do, uh, balance that with the need to also create jobs and yeah. to export our resources? Well. I mean, uh, I, I'm with the NDP because I believe that we can do both. Uh, I believe there's a path to uh, in reconciliation and protecting the environment and having jobs. I believe to my core that you can do that. If, if I didn't believe that, I would maybe I'd join the Green Party, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, and if I believe that it, uh, First Nations reconciliation doesn't matter or, uh, you know, worker side doesn't matter, our environment doesn't matter, maybe I'd be 
with the VC liberals because I kind of feel that's what I hear from them all the time. Uh, so I think we're taking the hard path, which is uh, sitting down with groups and, and working it out. It's not going to be easy. Uh, we hear about it in the news all the time and the media loves to cover uh, friction, um, but we're seeing lots of progress as well. And so uh, maybe we're suckers for punishment, but uh, I do believe this is the right path uh, and we're going to find a way through it. Yeah, well, um, uh, and the Green Party is looking for a leader, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> if you do yeah. decide to join, you might as well go right to the top. I don't think uh, I'd be a good type of Green leader, but... I know you too well. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I did want to talk about, you talked about your tour of forest communities. Mm -hmm. You also did a tour uh, talking about anti-racism yeah. and, and those issues. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because it, yeah. it got some attention for sure, but uh, I think there was probably a lot more to it than we heard. Yeah, well, um, the Murdered Missing Women's yeah. Report came out, and one of the actions it was uh, to have a conversation about racism through the province. And so... Um, you know, I asked staff to help set it up. We end up going to, um, you know, we started in Comox, Courtney Comox, and we went to Nanaimo Couch in Victoria. We went up to Prince Rupert, Prince George, uh, Fort St. James. Uh, we were in, uh, 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 you know, we traveled the province, let me put it that way. And uh, it was it was an interesting experience, you know. Um, the, the amount of uh, stories that I heard about uh, people facing racism uh, was more than I was expecting. Mm -hmm. um, but I also left very optimistic and positive because so many people showed up. Mm. Uh, and it, so it shows me that yeah, we have challenges, but we also have a lot of good people who want to see the thing go, you know, province go in a more positive direction. So I actually left very hopeful, uh, although I was hearing kind of negative stories. I, mm -hmm. I left hopeful because we had elected officials show up and just sometimes they'd be like, I didn't know these things were happening in my community. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and I would always say, well, first off, I'm glad you're here because you heard it and now you have a responsibility to do something about it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I, my plan was to spend the summer doing that and then I got the forestry file right at the end of uh, my tour mm -hmm. and so I launched another tour, but I'm glad we were able to do it and we announced um, soon after uh, a new uh, hub and spoke model to start to address that and, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to make a big difference in communities. I, I particularly wanted to ask you because we've just had this past uh, week or week and a half the situation with the Bank of Montreal mm -hmm. office uh, Branch that had a uh, indigenous man and his granddaughter arrested, yeah. uh, and and now the bank has uh, apologized profusely. I would say, but um, so it's still clear that this yeah. this is uh, this is in downtown Vancouver. It's uh, yeah. not in some uh, small town where there's uh, perhaps more overt racism, yeah. but it seems a, a pretty sad example. Well, I mean, it was BMO in this situation, but you can pick a name. Mm -hmm. And it could have been somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and the reality is, it, and we know that it happens when people are accessing services from government too. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody, you know, maybe perhaps when you acknowledge it, you can actually start to address it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, when we had the uh, poverty reduction strategy and Minister Jane Simpson did the rounds, in his report, he said racism is an issue when addressing, uh, when accessing social services. Yeah. Uh, and so, I even heard from a former chief who told me about a healthcare situation where she she took her daughter to the hospital and the nurse took her sweet time to help her and then eventually said to her, uh, have you been drinking? And it's like, I'm here for an emergency and this is the yeah, first question. Yeah. And so it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, I'm hopeful and I believe we're making progress. And part of the solution is um, ensuring you have diversity on boards. So the Minister of Health has done an amazing job. He has First Nations representation on every single health authority in this province. Yeah. Believe it or not, it wasn't there before. Yeah. Um, and uh, in, in, even in my ministry, 
We've got frontline staff who are taking courses on uh, uh, reconciliation and First Nations so it can help them in their daily interactions. And so I feel like, uh, you know, we're making progress and, uh, uh, and although BMO is getting beat up right now, and I don't know why the police would put a 12-year-old in the back. <coughs> yeah, I just don't. Yeah. That, that's a different yeah. uh, piece yeah. altogether. So, Ravi, just switching gears a little bit, but, but staying on the same topic, federally, mm -hmm. um, the federal government uh, is trying to tackle its own issues with racism. Mm -hmm. And I know in, within the last... I think it's the last decade, they've shifted their whole hiring policy where they're now anonymizing mm -hmm. uh, people. So when people within the public service are applying for jobs, the research had showed that uh, if you were a, a person that yeah. sounded like you had a South Asian name or First Nations, you may not even get that interview. Yeah. Is that something further to what you just talked about? Is that something that the BC government itself would look at doing in its own shop? Yeah. Is that something that would of consideration? I think that I know that it's happening in some places uh, and I think it needs to happen more often. You know there was a Harvard study uh, I think it was like five six years ago where they did that they put in a hundred resume a thousand resumes uh, for jobs and 500 had Anglo names and 500 had non-Anglo names mm -hmm. and they found there was overwhelmingly people who had Anglo, Anglo names that were getting, getting interviews so we know that it's the bias is there whether it's intentional or not it yeah. might not be right and so um, I think you know at the end of the day every organization wants to have the best talent and if you can find a way to ensure that um, the biases are taken out of it but at the same time you're hiring the best and the brightest, I think it's a win-win for everybody. And so I'm glad the federal government's going in that direction. Uh, and I certainly hope our folks continue to go in that direction. And, and I recommend that to the private sector too, because mm. at the end of the day, everybody wants talent, right? And, uh, and so if your system is filtering some of that talent out inappropriately, you want to fix that. So. Yeah, yeah. One, one of the issues we just passed over briefly, but I did want to focus a bit more on it uh, yeah. as well, the coastal gas link situation where uh, the Premier, Premier John Horgan yeah. has said that the rule of law will apply, uh, and I tend to agree, and that we have 20 First Nations along the uh, along the corridor have all agreed, but we have hereditary chiefs who are unelected saying, no, no, wait a minute, we, we don't agree. Yeah. How? And then, of course, the legislature unanimously yeah. passed uh, the UNDRIP legislation, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So how, as a government, do you grapple with all those kind yeah. of challenging issues. Yeah, well, you you, you, you keep working at it. Uh, I think that's how you do it. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a difficult situation, no doubt about it. Um, and the Supreme Court has said that they've got permits and they can continue to do uh, the work they need to do. Uh, people have the right to protest. I mean, you know, I've got friends who protest. <laughs> I've protested. Uh, but, you know, you, you know, you want it done in a peaceful manner. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. what makes us special as a country compared to some parts of the world yeah. uh, where you can have your voice and, uh, but you got to do it in a respectful, peaceful way. And so uh, I know recently, uh, um, you know, there was a call to meet with uh, government, uh, but we've been, the Premier was it, uh, meeting with the Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary chiefs last year. He went and met with them face to face. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had government to government meetings monthly, every month mm -hmm. uh, since then. Um, perhaps not about the pipeline, but about a host of other issues. And so those meetings have continued and I appreciate there's going to be a lot of rhetoric and people trying to drum up their, their issues and their case but those conversations have been happening. I saw the Green Party's release uh, just recently on that as well, and, and they, uh, as far as DRIPA goes, they acknowledge that it's the, the purpose of it was forward-looking. How do we change the way government's relationship with First Nations is going forward? Not to relook. Um, even uh, Grand Ch uh, Chief, Regional Chief uh, Terry Tiji acknowledged that, uh, that the, the legislation wasn't a veto. He said it in his statement in the legislature. And so, uh, you know, these issues sometimes uh, become the main issues, but we're going to 
keep working at it. We're going to keep having conversations. And, and again, I'm, I'm hopeful. And if I wasn't, I, I wouldn't be doing this yeah. job. So. And I guess, uh, just sorry, Daniel, yeah. I'm just going to follow up. <clears throat> I guess the question I have, because this is BC mm -hmm. Polytalk, yeah. uh, is, is there a political opening for a party that mm -hmm. uh, obviously is not Liberal, Green, or NDP, perhaps BC Conservative or something that might come along, to say, well, we don't agree with Andrea. We, we think that this has gone too far and try and carve out some of what I would call the right wing and particularly rural mm. vote. And I mean, you, you know, you wonder in some of the forest industry communities and others whether that might have some appeal that could cause a, a, some kind of a rupture within BC politics. Well, th that kind of rupture is, was happening in the BC Liberal Caucus. I mean, when this thing was brought forward, you had uh, members walking out of their chambers. Uh, I'm surprised some of them even showed up to vote because you could see they were visibly yeah, angry about yeah, it. Yeah. And so uh, it's, it, it certainly is a fault line uh, within their universe. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, Andrew Wilkinson's struggling uh, to keep this uh, tent together because they have people who fundamentally disagree on issues and uh, and and so yeah you're right there there definitely is an opening there uh, and there's people out there I mean I have people in my community have come on and said I'm totally against what you guys are doing on that mm -hmm. fair fair on you you know people have the right to their opinion and I certainly know that it's there and you're right BC Conservative Party if that's their view would have uh, an opening to have that conversation but I certainly hope that most people understand that this is correcting historical injustices and that uh, it's the right thing to do. Um, but uh, not everybody will always agree. Yeah. Now, uh, you've been criticized, you being government, yeah. uh, the, actually the Minister of Force in particular from the BC Liberals around having the Minister of Force go up to uh, to that region and to actually uh, interact with the hereditary chiefs. And, and Minister, I think, has clarified on the record that he was merely bringing some food or something. Mm -hmm. Did, what was the what motivated the minister to do that? Because it does open up the door for people to say that maybe the government's having it both ways. The minister's uh, sympathetic to yeah. the hereditary chiefs, but the government itself's not taking that position. Any well, as an MLA, your job is to talk to your constituents. And if he has constituents there, that's his responsibility, whether they agree with him or whether they don't. Uh, I meet with people who I don't agree with, and they don't agree with me, uh, being in the, in the office, but I meet with them. Uh, and so uh, I find that criticism quite hilarious, to be honest with you, uh, to criticize somebody, to go and talk to somebody who, who's who got a, a difference of opinion. Uh, perhaps if the BC Liberals did more of that, they would be in government still, but they forgot that that's what they're elected to do. And, and so we're gonna continue to do that. I think the minister has all the rights to go and talk to people he represents uh, and I think he should be doing that. One of the reasons I think the BC Liberals aren't in government is uh, they didn't move on ridesharing yeah. and that's one of the big topics that we've had. Um, your government, the NDP government and John Horgan have said we're moving on it, we were going to have it mm -hmm. uh, by this Christmas but it was of course in the hands of the pa uh, Passenger Transportation Board which is an independent body. Yeah. So how are you guys grappling with uh, it's gone into the system yeah. and you have no idea when it's going to come out. Yeah, well, uh, that's the power of being an independent body. They yeah. get to decide uh, when they want to and how they're going to make those decisions. Uh, we can just certainly hope that they make uh, thoughtful decisions uh, and learn from other jurisdictions. Uh, you know, uh, I do find it comical uh, hearing um, uh, BC Liberals talk about, oh, how they would have done so great <laughs> with this file. Uh, but, you know, we've passed all the legislation pieces. We had to change lots of legislation to make this a reality. Mm -hmm. uh, ICBC pieces are in place. So the pieces are in place. The PTB just needs to make some t uh, tough decisions. And I think the amount of companies that applied 
I think is what surprised the PTB. Yeah. I mean, you know, most people thought it was going to be one or two companies, you know, the big two. Uh, and now you have, I think, eight or ten companies applying. Uh, I think no one expected that kind of uptake. And so I hope the PTB gets it right. I hope they're thoughtful about um, learning the lessons uh, from other jurisdictions, whether it's around congestion or whether it's about people making a, a decent wage. And, mm. you know, I am here as a, uh, my my dad was a taxi driver, mm-hmm. and so uh, I'm here because you know he drove every night uh, and made money, so I could you know do all the things I did in my life. And so my uh, my concern as a person is not about share values or a company this or company Y or some major company coming to make money here. It's about drivers and how are these drivers going to be able to provide for their kids. And so as long as the PTB addresses those things, I'm happy with whatever comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think both uh, the BC Liberals and the BC NDP have had a kick at the can in terms of ride sharing. We're still waiting, so mm-hmm. uh, we still don't have it at, at the time of this taping. Yeah. Who knows? It might be. Uh, I might walk out the door today and I might actually be able to work yeah. on my app. But um, one of the areas that I think you differ from the BC yeah. Liberals is that uh, I think they're on record as saying that they're open to, with class five yeah. and you guys have gone to class four, mm-hmm. which if you look and listen to all the ride-sharing companies, they'll tell you that's incredibly problematic. How do you respond to those critics who say that you guys have just put a really big hurdle in the way of ride-sharing in BC? Well, ride-sharing companies are, at the end of the day, going to try to get maximum value. I mean, they tell you they can't do class four, yet they're operating in markets where they have class four. Halifax, in fact, is now going to class four. They tell you you can't have caps, well, guess what? New York has caps. Uh, they they criticize companies that have taxis on their app, but they themselves in Japan have their app open to taxis. And so um, they're going to do what they got to do to try to get maximum benefit and, and the lowest amount of restrictions as possible. But I, it's all rhetoric because when they really want to do it, they can do it. And they've shown that they've done it in other jurisdictions. Uh, New York has caps. I mean, people don't even understand that. But what does that mean? At the end of the day, you press a button, you still car shows up. I don't think the general public cares about that kind of talk. I think they just want to be able to get a convenient car when they press a button. Mm-hmm. Um, Would you extend that though, Ravi? You, you, you don't, uh, for example, uh, there's other organizations like other community organizations that drive people around and they mm-hmm. have to do essentially similar work to, to the folks at Uber. Yeah. Would you require them to have class four as well? Because right now you wouldn't. Yeah. Um, so how do you respond to like Meals on Wheels and other groups yeah. that have to drive? Well, I think if, if, you're, if you're not doing it to make a profit, if you're, doing, if you're a non-profit, and trying to do something good for your community, we have to have some flexibility. Because, um, you know, they're not trying to make a money off it, they're trying to do something positive for the community. But if you're trying to make a profit, um, then I think you need to have those scrutinies in place. You need to have the defense, the, the safety in place so that people uh, feel comfortable when they get in that thing. So, and it's the car. And so uh, that's my view anyways. And uh, the PTB is independent. They're going to decide where they go from here. Yeah, I, I said Meals on Wheels, but I meant the... the, the uh, I have no idea what you meant. No, yeah, I, didn't, I, I, I said I had Meals on Wheels, but I'm thinking of the uh, the uh, uh, the New Year's Eve stuff where they, the drivers, oh, they, yeah, I can't yeah. remember the name yeah. of the company. Oh, oh the Red Operation Red, 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 Red Nose. Operation yeah, yeah. Red Nose. Uh, yeah, now you, have, now you yeah. have the Red Nose. Now yeah. I have the Red Nose because I got Meals on Wheels. I have, yeah. I have one more question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So you're, uh, not only you're one of the younger members, mm-hmm. youngest members in the legislature, but you also came from the back room, working with Adrian Dix when he was party leader and when we first met probably. Yeah. Uh, to the front room. How, how have you found that transition and also being a young member of the legislature? Well, I feel like I know less. <laughs> you know, uh, when you're working in those rooms, you know everything, yeah. you know, everybody, you have to. somebody sneezed and you know that yeah. they sneezed. And uh, and so, um, you know, I, I, 
Uh, I joked that uh, I worked for uh, Adrian Dix uh, for many years. I worked for the Premier when he was opposition leader, and I joked that I started my own franchise. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, I really enjoy being an MLA. I really enjoy, like my favorite part is talking to people in my community. Mm -hmm. I could literally uh, stay in my community office and have people come in all day long, and uh, that part is it's very special. Uh, not always positive, you know, sometimes people have negative things to say, but it's it's always interesting and good to have that debate. And so uh, I enjoyed the work I did. I believed in the work I did for both uh, uh, Minister Dix now and, and the Premier of the Opposition. Uh, and we're able to show that the, the, all that work we did was for a reason. And we've made improvements on health care, on the environment, on First Nations reconciliation, like everything that I was hoping that we'd be able to do, we were making progress on. And so uh, it was well worth it. Great. Any advice you'd give to other young British Columbians who are thinking of maybe getting into politics? Now that you've been doing yeah. this for a few years, like yeah. any for anybody who's listening who might be thinking about getting into provincial politics? Yeah, well, I would say that if you have a young family, talk to people who are in politics, have young families. It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. You know, I've got a uh, I've got a partner who does amazing work, who essentially is doing her job and taking care of uh, my son. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm an absent parent in many ways. And, uh, and so you need to have that family support. You have to have an understanding of what you're getting into. But I always say to people that are interested, do it if you believe in what you're doing. If you want to just have your name in the newspaper, don't do it. If you are looking for a job, don't do it. Do it because you think you want to do something better for your community because then you'll find it's much easier to get the job done. But if you're there for anything else, it's, it's a painful ride, especially if you um, uh, don't like it after a few months. It's really difficult. And I see some of the faces across the way uh, and I see how unhappy they are. Um, and, uh, and I don't want to be that way. And so the day um, that I'm not feeling like I'm making a difference, I won't be doing this and I'll do something else. Yeah. No, I wasn't going to raise this, but the Premier did. Uh, he <laughs> uh -oh. said there was going to be talk of a cabinet shuffle or something. Yeah. So, I mean, I couldn't leave this interview without yeah. asking you. I mean, you, you are on probably a very small handful of names of people that, that Bill and I have mm -hmm. talked about that could be potentially going to cabinet. Has the Premier phoned you as he left yeah. you a message? <laughs> yeah, break, break, wow, some news. Wow. break some news. Is there any breaking news? Breaking news here. No, uh, I haven't got a phone call from anyone. And, and to be honest, I, I'm, I'm indifferent. Uh, I'm, I do the work anyways. And uh, I, I, I joke, I act like like a cabinet minister even though I'm not <laughs> so I just go and do the work I want to do and uh, it's tough putting a cabinet together uh, I've been on staff where you know it's potential conversations are happening I've seen the decisions and how they're made and um, and so you know whoever gets put in is gonna do a good job if it's me uh, I'd be happy to do the work if it's not me I'll continue to do what I'm doing so I'm, I'm well, different Thank you for being our second guest, yeah. and whether you're a cabinet minister or not, we hope you'll come back. <laughs> yeah. I'm back anytime you want, and uh, and I'll, I'll next time I'll uh, I'll bring some breaking news for you. <laughs> <laughs> we really appreciate it, Ravi Kalan. Thank you so much. Thank you it. so Thanks. much. Harry. Thanks. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. And we're back after talking with Ravi Kalan. Daniel, I thought that was quite fascinating. A lot of different aspects of that. Ravi's an impressive guy, and certainly somebody who knows a lot about a lot of different things. I particularly enjoyed the conversation about ride-sharing, a number of things that I didn't know before uh, that are quite important facts, so like the idea that there's a cap on the number of ride-shares in New York City, mm -hmm. uh, probably the biggest market they have. 
And then also on the forest industry, a lot of uh, a lot of things going on in the forest industry, a lot of challenges. No, I enjoyed that part uh, on the forestry because I think uh, that's not been explored very much around the whole issue of the fact that there are folks outside the lower mainland that are uh, living and breathing forestry need it to put food on the table. And yet in urban areas, it just doesn't, it's not very topical. People aren't uh, talking forestry or, or mining or resource industries, period, in, in the lower mainland. So his being able to make that connection back and saying how important it is mm -hmm. uh, to our local economy in Metro Vancouver that we support resources I think was a, that was a fascinating part of the discussion. Yeah and people do tend to forget in this city particularly in downtown Vancouver we are in Metro Vancouver that the forest industry the mining industry uh, other natural resources oil and gas and liquefied natural gas are all a huge part of our economy and also provide revenues that fund our schools our hospitals our roads uh, our entire way of life. Yeah and I can definitely see why the Premier put him as the par parliamentary secretary with a very long title. Um, he really seems to have a grasp on that file he really seems to be passionate as well about forestry which is which is important in, in that role so yeah that was, that was my takeaway yeah absolutely i agree great show and remember you can find everything at our website bcpolytalk.ca you can also chase us down on spotify and itunes for podcasts you can find us on vimeo you can also follow us on twitter and facebook and find links there you can go to youtube and see the show you've been listening to bc polytalk i'm daniel fontaine thanks for tuning in i'm bill tealman and thanks also.